0: Whether being slow to try fasting is a spiritual problem. What's she gonna do then? Well, that's what I've been sitting here contemplating. First, I'm gonna deliver this case to Marcellus. Then basically I'm just gonna walk the earth. What you mean walk the earth? You know, like Cain in Kung Fu. Walk from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. And how long do you intend to walk the earth? Till God puts me where he wants me to be. And what if he don't do that? If it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. Should I, after the tea and cakes and ices, have the strength to force the moment to its crisis? But though I have wept and fasted, wept and prayed, though I have seen my head grown slightly bald, brought in upon a platter, I am no prophet, and here is no great matter. I have seen the moment of my greatness flicker, and I have seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker. And, in short, I was afraid. Welcome to Walk the Earth. I'm Greg, and I chose today to introduce this particular question, not only with the question itself, as I always do, but also with just a quick moment from the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock by T.S. Eliot, because it is probably the first thing that pops into my mind when I hear the word fasted, or think about fasting as a concept. And in the midst of his poem, he uses this to uh, kind of bring out just another aspect of the doubts and fears and the midlife crisis of his character, saying that though he has wept and fasted and wept and prayed, it doesn't seem to have made any difference for him. And that's going to be the focus of probably the next three questions here on Walk the Earth, and something I'm going to call the Summer of Struggle. I'm taking a look at three particular things inside my own spiritual discipline and asking questions and looking very seriously at places where I'm quite sure I come up short. And not to offer too much of a hint of what's to come, which is ironic because I usually end every one of these Walk the Earth episodes with the next question. But for me, the summer of struggle is going to focus on fasting first, then prayer, and then finally pilgrimage. Because one of the other things I want to do is take a look At the timing of particular events in the Muslim spiritual calendar, even though Walk the Earth is a Protestant Christian focused podcast and will continue to be because that is kind of what I, what my focus is. The other thing I want to do that's a little bit unusual in this particular Walk the Earth is come along after the theme music at the very end and share the beginning of a chapter of a uh, novella that I wrote years and years ago called Temptations from the Wilderness. Because at the very end of this section, at the beginning of Chapter 6 of that, of that writing, I do speak a little bit about fasting as sort of one of my more secular concepts of what fasting is or could be. And I debated it. I mean, this is not normally the podcast where I would share any of my works of fiction or even poetry from me or anybody else. And yet, here we are right at the beginning of A Walk the Earth Question, ostensibly looking at fasting as an idea And I've already dropped in a quote from T.S. Eliot. I know I'm promising to put some prose at the end of the episode. But it also kind of provides a little bit of a hint of what's to come in the next two or three episodes of Inappropriate Conversations as well. Because this section in the form of a letter looks more uh, not just at concepts like fasting, but also at the question of consent a little bit too. And consent is coming up here in the next couple of months on Inappropriate Conversations Just to provide a little bit more orientation, so that when I get to the end of the show, I can just dive into the fiction. This was a Lenten writing experiment I did in the very early 1990s, where instead of coming along to that build-up toward Easter and the preparation for Easter, by doing the traditional Christian thing of giving something up, uh, deciding what I'm going to forego for a period of, depending on how you look at it, 40 or 47 days, between Ash Wednesday and and Easter Sunday, or between Ash Wednesday and Palm Sunday. It depends on how you observe it. uh, I decided this year that what I wanted to do instead was to go through an undertaking. Instead of practicing an art of spiritual discipline and dedicating some creative effort or some ascetic effort to the Lord, that I would do that instead by, instead of not doing something, I would do it by doing something. And What I decided might be the way to go would be to attempt to write a novel, or in this case more of a novella, with 40 completely different writing styles. 40 days, 40 different writing styles, ranging everything from uh, scripts from a TV broadcast, movie reviews, uh, true dialogue and conversation, a sermon. Um, But the one I want to share today is a personal letter from a, uh, a male to a female friend, and we'll get to that at the end of the show. But first... Fasting itself, and this question of, well, first off, I beg the question in the question itself by saying, am I the only one who's slow to try fasting? If fasting is a spiritual discipline that is practiced in a devoted way by hundreds of thousands, if not more, Muslims every year for an extended period of time, and if it's something that from the Christian monastic tradition certainly would be recommended, that there are references to it, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament of Christian texts. So you're talking about something within the realm of theism that has a strong foothold in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Why am I slow to try it? And uh, there are lots of reasons for that. I mean, just looking at me from the outside, somebody would probably guess, this is not a guy who's a regular practicer, practicer of fasting. I'm not the thinnest person in the world. But... I think that maybe lead me down the path I want to go when speaking about fasting from the perspective of physical health or physical attributes. Because you can look at it probably in three different ways. One is from what I'm going to generically describe as a health perspective. Another one, which might be a a form of meditation or at least a form of spiritual discipline. And the other one, uh, purely as sort of an intellectual exercise. So there is sort of that gamut of how you might look at it. And because we're getting awfully close to the beginning of the month of June, and when we get into the month of June here, uh, somewhere along the line, I think Ramadan begins June 4th, June 6th, somewhere in that point in time, I want to make good on the questions that I've asked a couple of times this year on whether recognizing if not celebrating, but at least recognizing the holy days and traditions of other religious beliefs is a healthy thing to do, if there's good that can come from that. But I probably should start with this from the Judeo-Christian perspective and go there first, because I certainly don't feel any uh, doubt in my mind about whether I'm dropping the ball by failing to practice a discipline of fasting at all in my life, And if I'm failing to do it from a Muslim perspective, that doesn't worry me a bit. But probably the place that I should deal with this thing head on is whether or not there's something I'm missing by not being more uh, willing or even aggressive about having fasting as a discipline in my life from a Judeo-Christian perspective. So just to quickly kind of gloss over the Old Testament point of view on this, just to put it out there, but kind of move quickly past it is the idea that most of the time you hear references to fasting in the Old Testament, it's fasting as an act of penitence. It's, uh, I've done something wrong, I need to get this right, I'm going to demonstrate that. You, you hear it mentioned as a litany of things that kind of goes along with that sort of sackcloth and ashes mentality. When Jonah is sent to visit the people of Nineveh and call them into repentance, um, I wouldn't be surprised if fasting was a piece of the puzzle that the religious leaders in that city decided that they were going to undertake to take this prophet seriously and get themselves right. And of course, Jonah, in that story, very disappointed in an ironic way that the city that he hated on some personal level heard his words and responded to them and turned themselves around that he went off and pouted and perhaps fasted himself eventually. Uh, Maybe there's a rest of the story that isn't necessarily captured in the prophetic writings of the book of Jonah. And I wonder people who understand the Old Testament, who who think about Jonah as a character, never get past the sort of window dressing aspects of it, thinking that the story is all about somebody being um, thrown overboard and swallowed up by some sort of large creature and uh, begging for mercy. All that sort of stuff is just a setup. The real story is, in a rare plot twist, prophet is sent to minister to a group of people that he hates, and they listen to him. Because if you look at the typical pattern of prophecy, what you tend to have is a prophet who's heartbroken over a group of people that he loves, that he goes and preaches the message to from the Lord himself, and they don't listen to him. And his struggle is he knows that he's been given God's word, and he shares God's word, and it's not heard. But in the Jonah story, it's flipped on its head. He's going to speak to a people that he actually has a, a great deal of you know, hate toward. He despises Nineveh. And when he goes to share the message with him, probably somewhere in the back of his mind, thinking that it's not the end of the world if these people don't pay any attention to me and God just burns them off the face of the, of the planet. And he, of course, then finds himself dealing with, again, a strange, I'm going to call it ironic, sense of disappointment when they actually do pay attention to him and turn from their evil ways and turn themselves around through a discipline of uh, giving to the poor and uh, wearing sackcloth and ashes and tearing their shirts and praying and weeping and gnashing teeth and fasting. So a lot of the time when you hear fasting as a concept in the Old Testament, it's going to be that. It's going to be uh, either a moment of repentance or a moment of reconciliation. It's going to be an attempt to make something right by giving something up. Now that can lead in a very dangerous direction. One of the few things that Jesus says about fasting anywhere in the gospels is in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter six, verses sixteen through eighteen. Jesus says this in the midst of his sermon, after already giving warnings, making sure that his followers understood that he didn't want them giving to the church or to the poor in a way that everyone would see that they were doing something, quote, good, unquote, and not wanting them to make a public spectacle of prayer, not wanting them, in my opinion, to turn public schools into a show of piety, which seems to be what so many uh the religious right wants to do. Uh, Jesus follows that up with his third admonition against doing things publicly so that you may be seen by turning to fasting, saying this, And when you fast, do not put on a sad face as the hypocrites do. They neglect their appearance so that everyone will see that they are fasting. I assure you, they have already been paid in full. When you go without food, wash your face and comb your hair, so that others cannot know that you are fasting. Only your Father, who is unseen, will know. And your Father, who sees what you do in private, will reward you. Jesus of Nazareth, Sermon on the Mount, teaching about fasting. So one of the things that I do think I agree with is that even if fasting is dealing with a personal issue, uh, dealing with a moment of spiritual reconciliation or repentance, that it it, it isn't and shouldn't be a public thing. And therefore, when I look to the other great theistic religion, I come to it with a little bit of hesitation in that their manner of doing this is incredibly public. It's communal. It's on the calendar. It's something that is expected of everyone. And I don't know, maybe on some level, I would have the same qualms about public international fasting, the same way I would about public international prayers. I've talked about this before in previous episodes of Inappropriate Conversations. One in particular, Inappropriate Conversations 126, I think I might have called it less than human was looking at the American political concept of an international prayer breakfast organized by a semi-secretive uh, you know, religious and political organization called The Family uh, with the mission of nothing more than trying to twist the arms of American political leaders and get them to very publicly engage in a prayer event of sorts. And you know that there's something a little bit wrong with that event. Uh, for two reasons. First off, it exists to be a moment of very public prayer, in direct contradiction to what Jesus uh, taught at the beginning of Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. But the other thing is, when you read the transcript or listen to the broadcast of some of the speakers, uh, keynote speakers, I guess you'd call them, at those prayer breakfasts, there's often a great deal of political content. It's not that they don't real you know, wrap up and wind up with prayer. It's not that the event doesn't fulfill its named purpose. But let's just say that there's a lot of uh, politics and and the year that I spoke to it, a fair amount of subtle and presumed right-wing politics built into those moments. And Is it uh, a statement of uh, political speech or is it a genuine, heartfelt prayer? We'll get to genuine, heartfelt prayer a little bit later in this summer of struggle on Walk the Earth. But from a fasting perspective, I do have a little bit of concern. Now, having said that, Islam, I think, has something really right here. And I'm going to get to two things that they do much better than the rest of theism. One right now and one after I talk a little bit about secular versions of fasting. But community is extremely important. And I think that if you're going to try to do something, especially if you're going to have Um, you know, new believers trying to do something that is a little bit difficult to accomplish, then I think that probably doing it in community, doing it together, doing it at a specific point in time makes sense. And maybe on some level, Ramadan doesn't violate that public-private distinction that Jesus calls out uh, any more than Lent does, where you actually have a large group of Christians, quote-unquote, giving something up for relatively the same period of time each year. And doing so in a way that supports each other. I was at a restaurant just uh, last night celebrating a wedding anniversary with my wife. And uh, we had a quick conversation, or overheard a conversation perhaps, with the waiter uh, talking about the soup of the day on Friday. And someone was asking about what the soups were. And the waiter made a point of saying that, hey, now that Lent is over, you'll see more soups that are meat-based in our menu on Friday as the Friday rotating special soup of the day. That... All of Christianity on some level stops and does a a meatless Friday for Lent thing, Uh, probably initially to support the large number of Roman Catholic Christians that were in this country when restaurants like the one I went to were first uh, opening up and doing business. But I also think that it's probably, again, a nice uh, moment of community, a moment of solidarity. It's a little bit easier for somebody to celebrate a wedding anniversary in the midst of Lent if that anniversary date happens to be a Friday if the place you go is going to help you live up to whatever sort of food-based commitments you've made. And fasting is ultimately a food-based commitment. I'm about halfway through what I wanted to say about fasting, and I realize I haven't even talked necessarily about what it actually is. And there's a reason for that, because it can be a bit confusing. In the hands of an ascetic person, whether that be a a monk in the uh, Western Christian tradition or Probably more notably, the religions of the Indian subcontinent, where within Hinduism and Jainism and Buddhism, you might see much more aggressive, long-term, potentially even physically dangerous types of fasting occur, where people might go for a great deal of time without eating at all, uh, going with just water for weeks, for example. Again, there are some people who are physically capable of doing that and some people who are not. You could look at uh, me walking down the street and say, I could probably go weeks if he went on that kind of extended fast. Certainly before I was facing any serious issues related to starvation. But I do remember one time, one of my loved ones, going on one of those sort of very aggressive diets, a diet that would pretty much be the equivalent of a version of fasting, relatively little food or no food for parts of that process, and actually ended up having some heart problems, some heart anomalies as a result of that, because sometimes your body starts chewing away at the fat cells that are in your body, and it's a healthy kind of a purge of sorts. And other times it can have negative consequences to the functioning of your body. In other words, I would never go on one of those aggressive type fasts, a a aginist type fast, without consulting my doctor and monitoring that as if it was more of a health experiment than a spiritual experiment. And that really, I think, gets me to the segue of the next piece I wanted to introduce. I will get back to Ramadan in just a moment, with some very positive things to say about Ramadan, as a matter of fact. But first, I listened to a podcast to prepare for this show on Great American Life, the NPR podcast. And on this Great American Life episode, they were doing a reprise of something that had probably aired even as long as a decade ago. One of the staff members decided that he would, for the purpose of the program, try fasting. And I was very intrigued. I thought, wow, this this could be really interesting because maybe there is going to be some spiritual discovery or learning I can do by examining my complete reluctance to do fasting, even from a religious perspective, and what this person on the radio is trying out. Of course, I I listened to it on a podcast, but it was originally aired on NPR uh, as a radio show. But I was quickly disappointed when I realized that the fast that this individual was attempting wasn't truly a spiritual fast. It was an intellectual exercise on his part, which was good, and we'll get there before the end of the show today. But it was more of a, uh, I would describe it as a purge-cleanse type thing. It was more of a physical, almost new age exercise that he was doing. Now, the positives from that was that it did kind of recognize that there are certain medical risks that... There is a way of shutting down your metabolism by deciding when you're going to go off food and what do you do to get ready for the last day without food. And perhaps more importantly, in his case, after three solid weeks, I believe, a way of beginning to eat food again. That you shouldn't go without uh, food or, or much in the way of water for that extended period of time and then decide when the fast is over that the all-you-can-eat buffet at CC's Pizza is the logical thing to do. And I was very intrigued by it because there was uh, some sort of a a fibrous liquid blend that he drank the morning that his fast ended to try to kickstart his metabolism and get his digestive system ready for a return to, quote, normal, unquote. And what he said was that he was going to have an apple. Uh, his, his path back to food was to drink this drink and then have just one apple. And that was all he was going to have for the day. So he didn't overtax a digestive system that had been relatively underused for the better part of a month. And having just had that first sort of drink, that, you know, fibrous liquid, you know, viscous drink, knocked him out completely, ended up taking a nap for two hours. So despite being really hungry and looking forward to the apple and looking forward to breaking his fast in the way that the website he was interacting with had recommended, uh, didn't go quite the way he planned. He didn't wake up, brush his teeth, take a shower and eat the apple um, because just introducing something into his digestive tract that was you know, significantly thick and, and going to require his metabolism to kick in and operate was more than he was ready to handle. I'm assuming, for me, I would have had to take a day off work. Much like you almost have to take a day off work if you're preparing for a colonoscopy. A similar idea in many ways. Because the website he was interacting with, the community that he had found on this episode of This American Life, was all about trying to purge your body of impurities, now, I believe from a medical perspective that uh, I buy in the meme that says that you don't need to do any of these ridiculous sort of cleansing, purging, detoxing fasts to accomplish that because most of us have two kidneys and a liver, and that's what they do. So you're probably okay not uh, overreacting and, and taking risks with your health in order to rid your body of something by you know, drinking nothing but fruit juice for a month or, or whatever these things do. And the thing that I found disappointing in it was that the whole purpose of the entire thing was almost not spiritual. It is true that as he was documenting the experience years and years ago, he was looking for some sort of an intellectual breakthrough or some sort of an insight, and on some level that might be spiritual. But this wasn't religious. It wasn't prayerful. It wasn't inside the construct of a denomination or any sort of a prayer life or anything like that. It was strictly a way of saying, if I make my body better, so to speak— Uh, Will that free my mind and then open myself up to a new realm of ideas? When I get to the the clip, the excerpts from the Temptations from the Wilderness writing that I did all those years and years ago, subtitled A Neo-Surrealist Forsaking a Habit for Lent, when I get back to that, I'm going to talk a little bit about that even in the context of drugs. And from my perspective, saying no to drugs, that I'm always a little bit dubious of things that we think we can, quote, do, to open up some new metaphysical realm to us even if those things uh, are within the realm of religion but I'm more likely to tolerate the idea of meditation or prayer providing that kind of insight than I am, you know, other sort of rituals like the uh, recreational use of drugs or even in this case this one reporter's experience of fasting the other thing that I think bothered me about that experience of fasting was that it was it was solid through and through it was a no food other than maybe some sort of broth for 20 days straight and that struck me as a christian as being a little bit less of a spiritual discipline and more of an ascetic stunt and i keep using this word it's a-s-c-e-t-i-c it's uh extreme denial of certain uh, sustenance basically is what it is and if you look at the history of Buddhism and the moment of enlightenment for the Buddha, you can see that asceticism was has a role to play in Buddhism, but it was also something that on that journey to enlightenment was tried and then set aside as, as ineffective. And I don't know that I would be getting what I needed if I was trying to just you know, deprive my body of the fuel that it uses. So I ignore this sort of secular New Age get the evil spirits out of your body by detoxing yourself concept to say that's definitely not for me. And if that is what the Old Testament was referring to, then I think Jesus was right to reject it in the Sermon on the Mount. The other thing that was about that interview that I thought was very good that does tie in positively to Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mount was that there is a moment in the midst of that kind of extreme fasting where it's probably natural for the person doing the fast to wonder what others are thinking This reporter kind of laid it out to say, better off not telling anybody you're doing it, because it just becomes the only thing people want to talk about. And it's probably harder for you to follow the discipline you're trying to follow, whether that be based on faith or purely an intellectual exercise or uh, some sort of a health experiment, whatever it might be. It's a little bit harder to do when everybody is constantly talking to you about it. And he did express some disappointment of going to a party and expecting people after he lost 20 or 30 pounds early on in the process to talk about how good he looked. And instead they were worried that he was far too thin. That also is probably my perspective on things, worrying about people who too quickly become too thin. But that leads me back to Islam and the practice of fasting there in the season called Ramadan. Is it an unhealthy distraction to make the denial of food and water the only thing you're doing? And a couple of things I read when researching this, because I I had a couple of questions. One was, how exactly is fasting as a discipline practiced in most of Islam? Not assuming that most is, is everywhere, that there's probably exceptions. And where do they bring the spirituality into it? And the funny thing is, when I was doing the reading... I realized that I was relearning or remembering things that I'd already learned a long, long time ago. Many years ago, I appeared on an episode of the podcast Do Ask, Do Tell. I say it's a somewhat pod-faded podcast. There hasn't been a new episode in quite some time. But it's also the kind of show that could just pop into existence at the moment that some sort of uh, news event or uh, personal event happened in the lives of the people who have been rotating hosts of that show for, for all these years. But I was way back in the early days, episode number five of the very first incarnation of Do Ask, Do, Do Tell, invited on as a straight person, as a straight religious person, to help them walk through a conversation about religion. And one of the things that we talked about kind of before we hit the record button, kind of getting us on the same page, kind of uh, understanding the lay of the land talked a little bit about the fact that I, I'm not just somebody who's a, a faithful, practicing Protestant Christian, I guess be the way you'd word that, but I also have a religious studies minor degree. That when I went to uh, university life and was getting a uh, degree in journalism and preparing myself for a job as a reporter or an editor, you have all of these sort of requirements, educational requirements, certain number of science classes, certain number of humanities classes, so forth and so on. And I used the political science coursework by adding two or three more classes, getting a minor degree in political science, I used the uh, writing, composition, and grammar coursework, added two or three more classes, got a degree in English, a minor degree in English. But the other minor degree was the minor degree in religious studies. And rather than diversifying and taking sort of entry-level work in uh, mythology and humanities and anthropology, I just dove right into the religious studies curriculum. I only needed one extra class, I think, to get a minor degree in religious studies, but Ian, the host of the show at the time, was very quick to point out that, hey, that was probably two or almost three decades old in terms of the material. It was probably 25 years old. And would that mean that I, was, uh, that I couldn't really claim that as, a, as an area of expertise? And I couldn't point to the degree and say, he studied this, he knows it. And I was first to grant, hey, you're probably right. Because there's two reasons why that, that university study might not necessarily apply all these years later. One is that I haven't carried forth with the studies, haven't done that much continuing education, except as somebody who, as a reader, as a, somebody who thinks he uh, could be described as always be researching, as a reader, I'm, I'm up to date from that perspective, but not from a university perspective. I certainly could not claim that the degree is fresh and new. And the other question is, of course, anything that you haven't looked at from a, a university discipline, if you haven't looked at it in a while, then maybe the discipline itself has, change, has changed on you wouldn't make much sense to not have looked at anything in the medical field for 40 years and presume that you are still qualified to be a professor at a medical school because of just the sheer scope of change that happens and the speed with which it happens in the medical profession. The good news for me is that uh, religion changes much, 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 much more slowly. And when I was doing this research for uh, Ramadan as a topic, really I couldn't find any indication that anything that I'd studied on Islam you know, in college, had changed at all. So the two principles I want to call out that I think are very helpful here, and I think provide a positive contrast to the things that I was unhappy with uh, in that episode of This American Life, and what I might describe as a purely secular, almost new age form of fasting. Ramadan isn't about giving up food forever. There's a notion of between sunrise and sunset, no food. And that there will be a sustaining meal at the end of the day, And for those who truly are early risers, that uh, cup of coffee and a donut at the beginning of the day might not be the world's worst thing. I'm, of course, speaking casually here. But the fact that there's 12 or 14 or even 16 hours on some summer days with no food isn't the same thing as this uh, purge yourself of impurities and toxins fast that I heard about on that radio show. So to me, that's a positive. And the other thing that I think was a positive was that there was constant emphasis in the articles that I read that fasting is not about, in the, in the period of Ramadan, it's not about a physical discipline. You are not trying to make your body better. You are not dieting or trying to lose weight. You are doing a spiritual fast. And if you're fasting during the period of Ramadan with two hopes in mind, one spiritual, the other weight loss, you're doing it wrong. If you're doing a fast during the month of Ramadan with two ideas in mind, one spiritual and the other one opening up your mind to a new realm of ideas as if you just discovered some new drug by leveraging the human brain in a way it's never been used before, you're doing it wrong. That within that religious construct, fasting during Ramadan is a religious thing. It's a spiritual thing. It needs to be done for that purpose and if possible for that purpose solely if you're going to actually live up to the spiritual discipline, and perhaps get the result that you're looking for. and that really resonated with me and takes me back to my question because if I am failing on some level in the area of what does it mean to fast and what does it mean to take advantage of that spiritual discipline, then I'm being slow to do it, I'm being slow to do it in part because Christianity doesn't really offer that community around it, like the website that the reporter on this American Life found or the whole of Islam, in the case of Ramadan, so unless you actually took Lent and tried to exercise a Ramadan-style giving up of food, sunup to sundown, but still eating on a daily basis, something, and preferably something that wasn't um, gonna create temptation for you. Eh? If you have to, if you need three hours to prepare it, then you're probably preparing the food before the sun goes down, or you're gonna be eating at 11 o'clock at night. So. All those sort of things kind of come together and saying, maybe Islam is actually doing this the right way, but that doesn't really help me because that's not necessarily my particular spiritual discipline. So, here on the eve of Ramadan, I'm going to look at Muslim acquaintances and say, the method of fasting is a good one here. I think it's a spiritual one here, and bravo. But it only causes a little concern to me that I look now at whether I'm still being slow. To try fasting, whether in a Christian tradition or some other theistic tradition, and whether that hesitancy is a spiritual problem. Is food that important to me that I couldn't possibly conceive of giving it up, even for just half a day or two-thirds of a day? That's a possibility. And again, I've made the joke at the beginning of the show that if somebody kind of casually passed me on the street, they might guess that, yeah, this guy probably has trouble with fasting. (laughs) Fasting is probably not his his chief spiritual discipline. But as we look at this during the summer and summer of struggles, I, I focus on other areas where I think I have some problem committing to things that are really spiritually meaningful to other people, or at least not in the same way that they do it. Fasting is a great way to start, because it's one that I, I think I could probably truly say I've never attempted well. We might look at prayer, and obviously prayer is very important to me, so that's not an area where I'm throwing up the white flag and saying, I surrender, I'm just not going to do that, because I do. Or in the case of pilgrimage, where I might suggest that I have done that at times in my past successfully, but not necessarily in a directly spiritual way, certainly not in a directly Christian way. And maybe that's okay, maybe that's not. But what am I missing by not doing a fast? It might be the other thing, which I haven't talked about yet, instead of a purely spiritual discipline or a physical idea of getting the toxins out of your body. Maybe it's more of an intellectual exercise that maybe, you know eliminating some of these sort of physical activities that we do, these daily sustenance, interrupting the maintenance tasks, if you will, would clear your mind in a way that would enable perhaps better prayer life. Certainly, I would expect better meditation if that's a discipline that you practice. And the fasting in that that way becomes sort of a means to an end. I will confess, it's a means to an end that I haven't explored. Even if a fictional persona of mine might have, from time to time, recommended it or spoken about it as if it's something I've had a great deal of experience with. No, I could easily describe myself as somebody who has, in fact, at points in my life, wept and fasted. And wept and prayed, and although my head is not growing slightly bald, on more than one occasion I've had that metaphorical sense that my head has been brought into a room, delivered upon a platter. And I'm here to say, in this summer's episodes of Walk the Earth, I'm not a prophet, and maybe the things I'm saying are not of any great consequence either. But maybe the right thing to do from time to time is nothing more than share your struggles. If there's somebody listening to Walk the Earth who has had an experience of fasting that I'm missing because I'm looking at it, even though from a variety of perspectives, from an inherently limited number of perspectives. I wouldn't mind hearing about it. I always end uh, inappropriate conversations podcasts with contact information and ways you can interact with me online, and I almost never do it on walk the earth. But this seems like an occasion where that makes some sense. I can be reached by email uh, ic underscore greg at com has been the email for both these podcasts all through I'm on Twitter fairly actively ic underscore greg is the Twitter handle there and of course Facebook has Facebook pages for both inappropriate conversations and walk the earth if and as you were led please join me in prayer God of wonders you speak to us in so many different ways through a variety of cultural and spiritual traditions, and fasting seems to appear in almost all of them, even religions which I wouldn't describe as being theistic in any way. Lord, I believe that you are the creator of this universe, the necessary being behind it all, and therefore play an active role even in religious traditions that are very different from mine. And I'm confused, Lord, frankly, deeply confused, and might have to say maybe to the question of whether there's something spiritually wrong with me for being hesitant all these years to do any sort of even semi-serious experimentation with the discipline of fasting. Lord, I pray that in my life, you've acted in ways that cover that, that whatever I would gain through a ritual of sorts, like fasting, I've gotten in some other way. But I'm, I'm too humble, I guess, to acknowledge that I know the answer to that question. And frankly, Lord, it concerns me. So if there is something I'm supposed to be giving up, if there's something standing in the way between you and me, even something as simple as food or shaving, uh, I'd love to know it. And I'd love to have a way of dealing with it. And perhaps, Lord, I'll let you know, my mind is very open to that way of dealing with it, being truly interfaith or interdisciplinary, that maybe it's my hesitation about things I consider to be too new age that have stopped me, Lord. Maybe it's the relationship of Christianity and Islam throughout the world that has stopped me, Lord. You've perhaps given me examples. I may have read them in textbooks and online and not given it proper credence. I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that fasting or not fasting, my hunger for you is the same. Thank you. In your holy name we pray. Amen. What happened this morning, man, I agree, it was peculiar. But water into wine, I... All shapes and sizes, Vincent. You shouldn't talk to me that way, man. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions. On Walk the Earth, whether prayer is an act of futility or simply beyond our comprehension. Thanks for listening. Dear Tiffany, I got your letter last week. I haven't written back to you yet because something has disturbed me. More on that later. First, I have agreed to audit a class for one of my professors this summer. He wanted me for all the summer semester, but I negotiated out of half. Therefore, I probably won't see you until June. Basically, it's a good deal for me. Working with this guy will help me decide whether to pursue a master's degree. Second, my mother ran into your mother in the video store last week. It's possible mom offended her. I don't have many details. If necessary, though, please apologize to your mom on my behalf. From what I gather, the conversation took a turn into the I don't know what those two are up to, Zone. Her implication that you are somehow promiscuous touched a nerve with me, anyway. Hey, before I forget, an Alfred Hitchcock revival is supposed to be coming to town just after midterms. The British have just now exported a couple of movies made for propaganda purposes during World War II. They are short subjects, combining for about an hour in total, starring French actors and set in the French resistance movement. I know you like Hitch, And whatever's coming here will surely go to Palo Alto or perhaps San Francisco. To answer your question, yes, I agree that the political correctness rules of dating are inane. But no, I don't think it's a big deal. If anything, it may increase sexual activity rather than reducing it. Remember that conversation we had last summer about the give the dog a bone technique? Your phrase, not mine. Well, isn't that pretty much close to the ask first mentality of the PC movement? Before you answer that, let me confess that I tried it the other day, and it worked. I couldn't believe it. I felt like I was acting out a script that you had written, with just a little bit of may I do this here, and it would be the ultimate of that there, sprinkled liberally with uh, I'm embarrassed to ask you, and a touch of I don't want to lose your respect, and bingo! We respected each other in the shower the next morning, too. Don't feel bad about it. She was a nice girl, and I planned to see her again. I didn't lie to her either. I just uh, caged the truth handily within your scheme. You know, someday the women's Gestapo is going to haul you off kicking and screaming for teaching me that trick. They'll strap you down and torture you until you confess the secrets you divulge to the enemy. That's me, the enemy. Joking aside, something you mentioned in your letter has stuck with me in a disturbing way. Specifically, I'm referring to being, quote, bored with alcohol, unquote, and considering exploring a new means of intellectual exploration. I don't know how to word this. At the same time, I'm hoping that I'm jumping to a false conclusion, and yet I'm feeling apologetic if I do. To make things worse, I'm not Nancy Reagan, nor would I pretend to be. Nor can I convince you that I was the first lady from hell if I tried, I hope. For the sake of argument, then, let's presume that you are considering experimenting with drugs. This might be fun anyway, even if I'm wrong. We should begin by specifying our terms— Experimenting with drugs as a statement of fact could mean nothing more than switching from one a day to one a day plus iron. It could mean trying some kid's Flintstones vitamins. It could mean taking a low-maintenance dose of an antihistamine to stave off allergies at the start of hay fever season. Those experiments don't concern me. Take the iron. Women need iron anyway. Children's vitamins taken in moderation are harmless. I don't think you have any allergy problems. Nevertheless, I think what you're talking about here are mind-altering drugs. I've always hated that expression, and here I am putting it into use. Oh well. Let's be sure we understand that we are talking about mind-altering drugs. That includes pot, lewds, mushrooms, cocaine, the whole family, of narcotics. You know me well enough to know that I'm not likely to spout off for page after page after page about the dangers of addiction and the health risks associated with the synthesis of products that fall outside the field of pharmacology. I shouldn't have to tell you anyway, Tiff. The same girl who washed her fruit in the cafeteria water fountain before eating anything off the lunch line surely understands the dangers posed by pesticides and poor health standards of crop producers. And yet, can it be true? That same Tiffany, who was then so careful, would now consider ingesting something that was intentionally cut with God knows what? I find that hard to believe. I love you so much that I find that hard to believe. This may be an excellent time to emphasize this point. While I branch between the things I'm not going to say to you and the things that I most definitely will, let me remind you of where I'm coming from. I'm not your father. I don't want to be your father. No insult to Virgil. I just never felt like a parent to you, and I hope I don't come off that way now. No, I love you differently than that. I've always loved you like you were one of my sisters. You know that. I believe you when you tell me that I'm the brother you never had. Well, sis... My advice to you is this. Use your brain. Use your brain. If I were Nancy Reagan, I'd be saying something like, use your brain now because after you poison your mind with drugs, your brain may not work so well ever again. No, I'm not just saying no to an intellectual discourse about the subject like she would. What I'm saying is, it comes in two parts. First, why does experimentation with drugs seem advantageous? Second, is there a better way to reach the same goal? There's a guy in my critical essay class who is big-time into rap music. And every now and then he wears this shirt that has a black guy on the front who is smoking a joint. His hair is an afro made entirely of marijuana leaves. The back of the shirt is also adorned with leaf imagery, and it says something on it about exploring a brand new realm, or venture into the next realm, or something like that. I suppose that's a popular idea. The notion that mind-altering drugs are actually consciousness-expanding drugs. Along those lines, I guess it might seem tempting if, if to use synthetic assistance in exploring the new depths of the subconscious. For the user, there is, I would say, an illusion that some great truths are being revealed. I sound skeptical of this allegedly advantageous situation because I am skeptical. Before I detail my reasons for doubting this psychedelic roadmap to a whole new world, I want to pause and emphasize that we're searching here for advantages, Plural advantages to drug usage. I defy anyone to come up with another edge. These kinds of drugs will not aid your physical being. Drugs won't lengthen your life. They're an inefficient method of weight loss. You can accomplish that much more cheaply by guar gum derivatives and other sort of over the counter things. And spiritually? Well, despite our differences of opinion there, uh, we both know what your Catholic family would say. No. The only substantial argument in favor of drug experimentation is psychological. I may not persuade you initially on this matter. That's because I openly question how much of the trip, so to speak, is the product of the mind and how much is the product of the the hallucinogen. Rather than opening a person's perceptions, it is quite likely that drugs cloud our understanding so fully that a mirage of perceptions is instead created and mistaken for a true vision." If I grant, though, that drugs do somehow bridge a person into a new realm of consciousness, then that leads me to the second question. Is that the best way to accomplish this goal? My initial reaction to that is to just say no, because no one can be sure that the illusion caused by being high aren't only the byproduct of the drug alone. In this manner, taking a drug would no more change your perceptions than a carnival's funhouse mirror would make you tall and thin. My first thought isn't even my best thought. I guess there are two things that make using drugs a poor method of rising to a whole new realm. One is dependence, the other is expense. Again, I'm no Nancy Reagan. I'm not talking about committing crimes to maintain a habit. No, but say that as a casual once or twice user, you do learn something about your nature that you don't know now. Fine. What did it cost you? Let's conservatively guess 100 bucks. Without that $100, bucks, you have entered in a whole new realm. The next morning, you may recall what you observed within that said realm. However, you surely don't recall how you got there. So how do you get back to the same place to continue your studies? More drugs. Can you guarantee that the same drug will take you to the same place? Of course not. In this regard, you would become dependent upon the drug to further your consciousness-expanding experiment. Without it, all you've learned will be lost. At fifty to a hundred bucks per experiment, that is a most inefficient system. What makes the drug enhanced approach seem even more costly and wasteful is how unnecessary it truly is. A sharp, dare I say brilliant, woman like you can get to that same place virtually for free. How? I'd recommend spending a weekend, totally alone in your apartment, in fact, in a fast, with nothing but spring water to drink and nothing to listen to except the ambient music of Brian Eno, or perhaps some Gregorian chant. Proper relaxation will clear your mind. If you then fill your time with the writings of Bourget and Hess and Joyce and Faulkner, then you will reach that other realm, or even a significantly higher one. And Furthermore, you will remember how you got there because you drew the map. This is the vital point. Drugs are like being blindfolded, tossed in a trunk, and driven several miles to a secret incense-burning hideout. By bringing the hallucinatory powers of your own brain to bear upon your experiment, you will be able to easily retrace your steps. Granted, books aren't as glamorous as drugs seem to be. On the other hand, they aren't as consumable, and they aren't as expensive. Based on our own personal experiences, neither of us have any cause to doubt the inspiring power of the written word. Remember the parallel we drew from our own experiences, out of the sound and the fury, and spode, calling Shreve my husband, Ah, let him alone, Shreve said. If he's got better sense than to chase after the little dirty sluts, whose business? In the South, you're ashamed of being a virgin. Boys, men, they lie about it. Because it means less to women, Father said. He said it was men invented virginity, not women. Father said it's like death, only a state in which the others are left. And I said, but to believe it doesn't matter. And he said, that's what's so sad about anything, not only virginity. And I said, why couldn't it have been me and not her who is unvirgin? And he said, that's why that's sad too. Nothing is even worth the changing of it. And Shreve said, if he's got better sense than to chase after the little dirty sluts. And I said, did you ever have a sister? Did you? Did you? These are the thoughts of a character who's plunging off a bridge to his death. I used that in a class that I was telling you about. And by using you as an example, I got an A on the first paper first one we turned in this semester. I believe that I was only able to put together my analysis by venturing into a whole new realm of conscious thought. If I'd used drugs, though, I wouldn't have been able to defend my thesis during the oral part of the presentation. Did you ever notice how people who use drugs always have a I-don't-know-man answer to basic questions about what they did and how they felt? Their drug-induced state was supposedly too mind-blowing to describe. Perhaps they are right, After all, the experience has the correlative drawback of being too mind-blowing to remember. What a waste. Tiffany, if you manage to explore a frightening new level of your subconscious mind, I expect you to invite me there the next time we get together. To accomplish this goal, you must. Must get there without drugs because your chemicals will not help me get inside your brain, even if I took the exact same chemicals. I'm asking you this as your best friend. Best friend. There I go again. Look at the length of this letter. This is going to be a scream if you aren't talking about drugs after all. Say, in your next letter, you have to let me know when Stanford's out for spring break. We'll be out on the 11th here. At first it seemed early to me, but now I'm more than ready. Being this far south may explain how early we're off. But let me know when you are free. Even if your break is after mine, I may drive up and catch you on one of the weekends. We'll laugh about this correspondence then. In the meantime, if it ain't broke... Don't fix it. Your friend, Scott.